Well, we've been working on an idea, and I want to go back at it, called recalibrating life in Jesus. Recalibrating life. Now, um, I, I was uh, thinking about this the other day and, and uh, doing some uh, work. We, we were uh, out in Colorado for a few days again, for kind of getting our last breath of cool, cool air. And I have a 35 millimeter camera that I have never learned how to use, except put on automatic. And I've taken some terrible pictures uh, at a pretty high, pretty high price. And, uh, you know, not many people carry them anymore. We were, we were walking around, everybody's got their iPhone or their iPad. But I, I, on this trip, I decided I'm going to start messing with this thing and, and work with it and start calibrating what they call the f-stop and the shutter speed and all this kind of stuff. And I found out I can take some pretty good pictures, you know, because I, I learned how to calibrate, if you will, uh, the, the camera and the lens and the shutter speed and all that stuff. Um, because, I mean, it's the same object that we're, I'm looking at. Uh, but if the camera's not calibrated correctly, it's fuzzy, it's dark, uh, you can't see it as well. If the camera's calibrated correctly, uh, then you can see it well. In fact, I said, that actually some, looks a little bit better than it does in real life. <laughs> I was kind of surprised. I, I, I may be a great photographer and not know it. <laughs> but, but calibrating it, this idea of calibrating our life in Jesus doesn't mean we have to rework it. But it may mean that in some ways, the way we see it, the way we understand it, the way we experience it may at times need some recalibration. It doesn't mean that I changed what I was taking a picture of. It meant that I got a better, more clear and accurate focus on it. And so I want us to consider this today in this matter of calibrating. Getting the picture clearer maybe than we have before. And I've suggested to you that what I'm operating off here is the idea, and I'm going to give this first one here. We've talked about this. Whoops. And it, well, this is the first calibration I want you to think about. Is your life in Jesus more attachment or detachment? Try to explain that. In other words, living the Christian life is what you what don't do. You ever, you ever, you ever had that experience in Christianity? I remember asking my dad one time, we were, we were discussing the Christian office, a young guy, and he was telling me, well, we don't do this because you know, we're Christians. We, we don't do this. And, and, we, and I finally said, now, what do we do? <laughs> I was a little confused. And sometimes our life in Jesus needs to get recalibrated because our life is a little bit more about detachment than it is attachment. And I, I want to I work through this because this idea of being attached Here's the concept I, I rolled out a few weeks ago, that the Christian life might be more accurately understood, not simply, it's part of, the, part, of the, part of the process, of asking Jesus into our life, but it seems that it might be that the Christian life might be as much or more about Jesus inviting us into his life. That's bigger. That's more expansive. It's less about me and more about him that, that the Christian, me just asking him into my life, my little life, but really being invited into his life. So it's that attachment. Here's the theological term if you're interested. It's called union with Christ. There's a new book out by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. I don't know if you've heard of him or uh, uh, read anything by him, but he's got a, a book called The Whole, H-O-L-E, in Our Holiness. He's a really sharp guy, young man. Um, everybody's young now, huh? 
going to the leadership summit this week and I look around and I think, nobody wants to talk to me. I'm 63 years old. They want to talk to these 30-something that, you know, lift weights and wear jeans all the time. <laughs> I hate those guys. <laughs> Not really. There's a few of them in here. Uh, uh, but but this, this idea of, of, uh, of really life in Jesus is, is a recalibration, I think, for us. Instead of just thinking about our little life. Now, I, I want to tell you again, I just want to touch, we, if you want to listen to the 23rd, uh, July the 23rd uh, recording, that's fine. There's much more detail here. Let me just remind you. There is a general understanding in the New Testament of union with Christ. And DeYoung says, it's the most important doctrine you've never heard. Isn't that interesting? He said, union with Christ, this attachment, is the most important doctrine you've never heard. You've never heard it. I mean, I'm not, that's probably not accurate, but, but we don't hear about it much. What does it mean to be in union with Jesus? That's that attachment idea. Not just detached, just re rejecting the world, just if you will. So this idea of general, this general calibration is to remember that the Christian life, the Jesus life is life in Christ. This would be a good test question. Instead of life where? Anybody remember two weeks ago? It's a particular, particular place, person. It's Romans 5. Life in Adam. Life in Adam. The, the New Testament generally understands there's only really two levels of existence. You're either in Christ or you're still in Adam. And Adam is human life, human ability, human, uh, 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 human power. Where, where, where when things get tough or when, when I'm living my life, I'm living my life based on Adam's values, principles, and truth. I, I got to get this in your mind now because this makes all the New Testament begin to understand that we're either in Christ or we're in Adam. With me? That the New Testament understands life in the Christian life is life in Christ. I told you 164 times the word in Christ or in him occurs in the New Testament. 164 times. You might want to take a look at that. If something shows up 164 times, by the way, it's just the epistles, not the whole New Testament, the epistles. You know what the epistles are, right? Wives of the apostles. I know some of y'all have been here a long time with me. <laughs> the epistles are the letters to the, uh, to the churches. 164 times, the word in Christ or in him shows up. So the New Testament view of life, the Jesus life, generally is understood as in him. Life in Christ, this, this union matter. So we're either in Christ, rely on him, trusting his spirit, or we're in Adam, using our own abilities, using our own power, our own intellect, and that deciding that's how I live life. That's how Paul says, I told you before in Romans 6, that when, we, when Christ died, our old man was crucified with him. Romans 6, you can go read it. Our old man was crucified. That word there is anthropos, meaning amen, and it's singular. And Paul, I think, is absolutely referring to Adam died. Life in Adam. Remember what I told you what 1 Corinthians 15 says? Who is, or, or in, in Romans 5, who is Jesus? Or, I'm sorry, who is Adam, Romans 5? 
I might have to give y'all a test. <laughs> Adam, or I'm sorry, Christ is in the like. Adam is in the likeness of the one who is to come. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15. That's because in Christ, there's a new creation. If anyone is where? In Christ, he's what? New creation. Not a new creature. The Greek word katesis. If anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. So there's a new creation. So we're either in old creation in Adam or renewed. If you want to listen to the 20, on the 23rd, um, that, that might help some. Now it's interesting because this concept is, is hard for us. Partly because Americans are individuals. And we value individuals. But God looks, if you will, and the ancient world understands humanity in terms of collective. So we're either in Christ or we're in Adam. And we'll talk about it. We get in Christ through faith. So I want to move on. Now here's this, whoa. <clears throat> here's, here's a picture that's always kind of uh, uh, been interesting to me about calibration. How many of you see an old woman? How many of you see a young woman? Yeah. This is interesting on calibrating our sight, the way we see. It's almost hard until you do it. And then once you see the young woman, it's hard to see anything else, isn't it? Notice here. If you focus, I think this is on, it's not far enough. If you focus down, right down the bottom part here, and that's the chin, is this, this is not going to work. You see the old woman. But take your vision to the left, to the left of that picture, and see the little nose, and then back the ear. It's an interesting picture. See it? Now you see it? See, it, it, it is calibrating your vision. What are you looking at? I know some of you are going, I still don't see it. I still don't see it. You're trying too hard. You ever, did anybody, I had trouble with those 3D pictures too. They said, concentrate. I said, I'm trying. <laughs> I wish my, my, my pointer here is not working as far. But you see, it? You, yeah, you can see, you see the old lady if she's looking down. But if you're looking left, see her? The young lady? If you're looking down, you're seeing the older lady. If you're looking left, some of your, help, your wives are helping you. <laughs> right over here going, see, come on, come on, right? It's okay, it's all right. I looked at this thing forever and couldn't see it. Uh, but, but this is the idea of this calibrating of, of seeing things correctly. So in one sense, I mean, really, there is the picture of an old lady. And there is a picture of a young lady. This calibration of the life in Christ. I'm not, I'm not saying that it isn't that Jesus is in us. I'm not, I'm not saying that. There, there's truth to that. But the larger picture is that we are in Christ. Union. This is an interesting statement that Brendan Manning said, Jesus is not a hobby, part-time project, good theme for a book, or a last resort when all human effort fails. He's our life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so what is this specific calibration then? Here's where I want to go now to specific. General now, very specific. 
There are three things the New Testament seem to suggest about our union with Jesus. There are three. I told you a couple weeks ago, um, there will be a test from now on when I start doing this. Yeah. I'm, I'm, attendance will be, uh, attendance is going to drop off. Uh, here's the three things in union with Christ. Here, I'll just give them to you quickly. One is we died with him. Isn't that interesting? Most of the time we come to church, we hear about Jesus died for us, right? The New Testament more likely will tell you that you died with him. And what does that mean? There are more verses relating to that, that you died with Jesus Christ than that he just died for you. It's true. So we died with him. Second, you might anticipate, we were raised with him. Raised <clears throat> with him. And the third, we're, and we're not touching either one of those today, okay? <laughs> we're doing one. The third one is we are seated in heavenly places with him. Those seem to be the thematic ideas in the New Testament about what this union with Jesus looks like. Died with him, raised with him, seated with him. So let's work through that. This, this idea of recalibrating our understanding of dying with him. I think I'm gonna, uh, t I wanna touch on this right here because the idea of dying with Christ is a, it's a hard idea. Part of the problem is that in the Bible, we know that dying does not mean to cease to exist, correct? D.L. Moody used to say, who was a great preacher in Chicago, said, when you read in the paper that D.L. Moody has died, don't you believe it? He said, I'll be more alive than I've ever been. So dying from a biblical concept, does not mean to cease to exist. We, 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 we think that because when we see a dead body or we see someone at a funeral, they're not active. They, we, we, we tend to think of that because of the phenomenon of seeing somebody that's dead. But the New Testament never understood it that way, and the ancient world never understood it that way. The basic understanding of death, whenever it's used, the Greek term, in the New Testament particularly, and I would say in the ancient world generally, is this, separation. When my father died, the pain of that is not that I fear that he no longer exists, but what? Separate. I, I'm separated from him. I can't call him on the phone. Becky was asking me the other day, do you, th do you think of your dad often? I said, yeah, especially when we're traveling. And he, my dad and I were kind of gearheads, and uh, I would always call him and tell him how, what gas mileage I'm making. <laughs> we had a deep relationship. <laughs> I would. I just say, hey, I want to tell you, man, today, you know what we did today? Huh? Yeah, come on. Listen to this. 32. 32. And he was always wanting to know that kind of stuff, and we enjoyed that, and we talked a lot about theology and other stuff. Death in the scripture means Separation separated from. That's why the Bible can say that you and I are dead in trespasses and sins. Because we're separated from the source 
of life. Who's that? Jesus. If you're dead in trespasses of sin, you're still functioning, but you're separated from the source of life. And again, I want to say this to you again. I believe that we've made a big mistake in, in, in theological circles at times that we made people think sin is the big problem and sin is not the big problem. Life is the big problem. Life is the big problem. All of us are heat-seeking missiles for life. And if we think we're going to find it in a bottle, we'll go there. If we think we're going to find it in a drug, we'll go there. If we think we're going to find it in a person, we'll go there. If we think we're going to find it in a job, we'll go there. If we think we'll find a new relationship, we'll go there. Everybody is seeking life. They may be in the wrong place. Garth Brooks' song just comes to mind. but <laughs> Or Johnny Paycheck, excuse me. <laughs> It's sad that I know that. <laughs> but, but, but the issue, the issue is life. And so death is the idea of separation. From, by, by the way, just to give you a few verses here. Um, um, in the Bible, hell is called the second death. The second and final separation. In Revelation 20, verse 14. I mean, whatever it is, we, you know, we, there's all kinds of imagery, fire and darkness, and of course those are difficult things to reconcile. What it is, for sure, is a second, final separation from God. It's called the second death. The first death is to be dead in your trespasses and sins. If you stay there, you get to experience the second death. Separation from God forever. So that the idea of death is not ceasing to exist. This, this, this is where people get crazy. They think because I died with Christ, I'm no longer now affected by life or sin or temptation. That's crazy. It just means you've been separated from it. Now, what does that mean, Cliff? Thank you. I'm glad you asked. Here we go. I want to give you three areas the New Testament refers to in our dying. Does this make sense with you that we died with him? That we were separated from something or something. When, we, when he died, by putting our faith in him, we died. And I think there are three things. Here they go. Oh, I want to ask you this question because this is related to this. One of my professors at Asbury Seminary, I ought to look at my own notes, shouldn't I? Are you in the world for Christ? Or are you in Christ for the world? Big difference. People that are in the world for Christ have a tendency, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, to be a little cranky. <laughs> They're trying to fix everything. They're trying to right every wrong. They're trying to restore whatever they would think to good morality. Nothing wrong with that stuff. But if that's how you fundamentally understand yourself as a person in the world for Christ by what you do? Or are you a person who is in Christ for the world? Um, you can look at this. It's, I, I think this New Testament basis for this is found in Matthew 7, 21-23. One of the more... Um, at least it's caused me to take pause, where Jesus, on the last 
time or last day, is in, got a bunch of people in front of me. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he does the will of my Father. And a lot of people say, Lord, Lord, <laughs> we cast out devils in your name. You know what else we did? We performed miracles in your name. You know what else? We did many mighty works in your name. And it's fascinating to read that because Jesus never disagrees with them. He simply says, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, what does that mean? Is that an example of people who simply understand themselves as what they do? I'm busy, I'm involved, I'm active. I'm really committed to the work of Christ. Nothing wrong with being committed to the work of Christ as long as I'm in Christ for the world. But if my Christian experience hadn't been recalibrated, that it's not just about this religious activity that I'm involved in, then I may simply be in the world for Christ. I'm his advocate. I'll stand up for what he believes in. This has been a very disturbing thought that Bob, Dr. Mulholland planted in my brain some time ago. In Christ for the world. You know, this goes back to a, a long time idea about are you, is it your being that produces your doing? A friend of mine said he felt like at one point he was a human doing instead of a human being. That my doing becomes the result of my being, who I am. I am in Christ. Because of that, I live that out in the world. Instead of just living in the world for Christ. Jesus makes it pretty clear. I didn't know you. See, I, we, we didn't, I didn't know you. You didn't, I didn't know you. You didn't know me. So, now, Jesus, I'd be so, hey, I didn't realize you were born. That's not it. The word know means this intimate relationship. Now, I'm going to get to this, but I, I got another quote here for you by a guy I've been reading. I recommend him. His name is, he's, he's from, uh, by the way, there's a, uh, I think that's on your handout, isn't it? The link. There's a podcast, if you're interested in listening to this, about in Christ for the world. If you're interested in that, I just thought I'd give that to you. But another guy I've been reading and listening to over the summer about this idea of union with Christ. He's written a book called Reunion. His name is Bruxy Cavey. He's from Canada. You know, he's on the metric system, weird name, all kinds of stuff. You know, I just, he's Canadian, you know. He's, he's made this statement. I, I thought this was pretty, pretty clever and creative. You need to calibrate there. Knowing God or knowing religion. It's easy to get in that. It's easy, it's easy to... Uh, to get into that religious kind of practice. I'm busy. I'm in the world for Christ. I'm in the world for Christ. I'm in the world for Christ. Instead of me being in Christ for the world. I just, I want to lay that in your mind. I want it to, I want it to kind of eat away at you a little bit. Uh, after I taught this a couple weeks ago, on Monday, uh, I came back to the house and I just sat there in my chair for a while and I said, Cliff, this has got to be real to you. As I began to think, I thought, Lord, if I could recalibrate my understanding that I really am in you, 
for the world. And then my prayer life doesn't be so much about trying to, trying to get to you. My prayer life becomes this sharing and discussion and life that I'm in. This, this big, expansive life. This, this, this big life of being in Jesus going around. And, and it's, it's, it's recalibrating for me what I do on a day to day. Jerry, you're going to... The question here, doesn't this always lead us into anytime we're in ministry, there's some suspicion? Well, okay, yeah, that my ministry is not mine. Yeah, I, there was a guy that was talking to a fellow one time trying to impress him. He was a younger man with an older man. He said, uh, I just want you to know I'm part of an organization called Youth for Christ. And that's a great organization, by the way. Anybody, y'all heard about it? Youth for Christ. And the guy said, hmm, that's interesting. I don't really know Youth for Christ, but I know a Christ who is for youth. What, what do you think you're doing over here? You, you, you carrying the ball or something? Or are you being involved in something where there's a Christ who is for youth? See how that changes? See how that recalibrates? So my ministry can be laid down. I, I, listen, it's a hard thing when people get involved in ministry and even when they begin to have success to begin to lay it down and be Okay. I've told Wayne Bullbacher, he knows, you know, I've known preachers before that when they retired, they became the biggest headache in the church, right? So I told Wayne, if I ever get like that, you just get a hammer and hit me. He said, can we practice? <laughs> he wants to do a little practicing first. He wants to make sure he has a big enough, heavy enough hammer. But that's that idea. I'm, I'm in the world for Christ. This is my ministry. Boy, if somebody take that thing away from you, Watch what happens. Are you really in Christ for the world or are you in the world for Christ? And I've seen this happen over and over and over and over and over where we just have to say, it's like John Wesley said one time, he, he said, Lord, you can, you can grind me up like dust and never use me ever again. Or you can take me to heights that only you know of because we're in Christ first. How many of us, you know, you know, I, I do a lot of talking and a lot of teaching and I'm in front of a lot of people. And one of the real things that I've told you all lots about is where I have to regularly keep coming back to, this is not about me. If I fall flat on my face in Sunday school and everybody leaves tomorrow, I got to be okay with that. Right? Because I'm in Christ for the world. I'm not in the world for Christ. And I think a lot of us get hung up in success, quote, whatever that is, because we don't have this right. I'll, I'll tell you, and I don't mean to talk too much about myself here, but when Marty asked me to preach, I really said this to the Lord. I didn't know what he wanted to do, honestly. I just said, maybe the best thing that would happen to me when I preach is fall flat on my face. 
Now, I think God loves people too much to do that. He'll let me fall flat on my face some other ways. <laughs> but say, hey, is it about being in Christ or is it about being in the world? So th this idea, we, we have to say no to religion. Okay, so what are those three? I got to hurry. Um, <clears throat> number one, we're going to recalibrate. We've been buried or died with him. We, we've been buried or we've died with him. Now, let me give you some passages, just, just a few, that, that, that refer to this idea, dying with Christ. Romans 6, 1 to 7. Romans 6, 1 to 7. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. We may come back to that next week, but I want to get these three out of here so we can finish. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. 2 Timothy 2, 11. These are just two basic places where the idea of dying with Christ means separation. Separation from what is going to be the important thing. That's what we're going to look at. Paul's famous statement, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I told you before, that's an interesting term there. The word I in Greek is appropriately ego. E-G-O. It's a literal, that's a literal transliteration word. E, it's pronounced ego. It's not the thing in the toaster. Uh, yeah. I wish we'd get rid of our ego that, that easily, don't you? But it's ego. I. It's about me. So all of these phrases, that, so, so, so what have we died to in Christ? What, what, have we, what have we been separated from? So here's the first one. Being in the life, in Jesus' life, means we've died to him in three areas. Is that on your handout? That blank? I got so many blanks today, I don't know what to do with them. <clears throat> Number one, <clears throat> here we go, law. Separated as a means of acceptance. Go to Romans chapter 7 real quick. If you'll go to your table of contents, <clears throat> find the book of Romans. One of my favorite books in the Bible. <clears throat> Paul, in the New Testament, you've got to work with him to calibrate this right. Paul is not ever rejecting that followers of Jesus will keep the law. Doesn't mean they're going to start robbing and stealing and, and all that. You got to get this right now. Paul is never, never, ever suggests that life in Christ means we don't keep the law, that we break it. In fact, in Romans, you're in Romans seven. There, look, just flip to Romans eight real quick. I'll, I'll come back to this. In Romans 8, 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who have asked Jesus into their heart. Is that what it says? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. See, it's in his life. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, you want to make a note here. I'm just, I think I can prove this to you. The law of sin and death is Romans chapter 7. Watch this. Verse 3, for what the law could not do. 
What's that, Paul? Weak as it was through the flesh, it could not make one acceptable to God. Impossible. God did it through, uh, God did sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering in the sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Listen, following Jesus and being in the spirit doesn't mean you are lawless. It doesn't mean you have a free pass now, get out of jail card. See, for some of us, grace covers us, but it doesn't change us. You hear that again? For some people, grace covers them, never changes them. That's not the New Testament. See, we're separated from the law, though, as a means of acceptance. Paul rails in the New Testament about trying to be acceptable to God by keeping the law. And he's saying that cannot be done. He's not saying that Christians don't keep the law. He's saying you can, you're dead, you're separated from trying to be acceptable to God based on law. And that distinction has to be kept. You can't be good enough, you can't do enough, you can't try enough, you can't work enough, you can't accumulate enough. You have to be in Christ for your acceptance to God. So Paul is never shy about saying that we cannot be acceptable to God through law. Look at Romans 7, 1. Don't you know, brethren, I'm speaking to those who know the law, chapter 7, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound to her husband while he's living, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she's not an adulteress and may be joined to another man. Verse 4, therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another. That's back in chapter 6 what I said, that we died with him through baptism. You died to the law. You're, you're separated as a means of acceptance. Now, Paul is working hard on this because he's suggesting that part of the Jewish problem and part of our problem is, is that we think our acceptance becomes a matter of achievement. I got to do enough good. I went to church. I paid my tithe. You know, listen, in, when we're in Christ, we are separated from the law as a matter of or a means of acceptance. Does that make sense to you? This is what Paul's saying. When you died, when I died with Christ, our faith in him, we now no longer look to law as the basis of our acceptance. It doesn't mean we live lawless. It doesn't mean, it just simply means we never look to the law. We depend on Jesus. We rely on him. So if you're in Christ, if I'm in Christ, I have died to, separated from law, as the means of acceptance. Now dig around your heart here just a little bit. Whenever you're uh, recommending yourself to the Lord because <laughs> you wanted to do something, right? You know, hey, I'd like for you to do this and you know, I've been a good boy. <laughs> Have you ever tried that? You know, the, the, the idea that I'm trying to kind of recommend, just think about maybe how you're still thinking your acceptance with God is based on your ability to perform. One of the ways we might know that is 
by the way we look down on people who aren't performing? Do we look down on people who aren't performing? Because we are. See, we're, we're separated from the law as a means of acceptance. I thought I might get an amen. That's a pretty good, pretty good news. That Paul is working hard to help these people understand. You cannot be acceptable to God based on the law. So you died to the law as a means of acceptance. You're separated from it. For some of us, I think it's been a lifelong journey, hasn't it? To try to get to the place where we don't ex- think that we're accepted with God because of our performance. Anybody with me? Yeah. I've told you before. I've told you before. I've had to work through this over the years, and there's still times when I do. And here's how I know that I'm still afflicted by it. That when I sin, and I have in the last several years. No. <laughs> well, the last several seconds. <laughs> yeah, right there. I've sinned, you know, done something I shouldn't have done, thoughts, and, and here, you know what happens? Panic immediately sets in. Why? Because my, my standing is now threatened. Why? I've been bad. I wasn't good. Now all of a sudden, my fear of my acceptance is gone i got to find my way back in. I, I don't know about you, but I've struggled with that all my life, that where when I fail or sin, I've got to do, you know, we, we talk about uh, sometimes Catholicism where they do Hail Marys and Our Fathers. We do the same thing as Protestants. Go to church one more time. We try to do some act of service to someone. That's our Hail Marys and Our Fathers. We're just on the same drill. So let me ask you, have you died with Christ? If you have, do you know that you're separated from the law as a means of acceptance? The whole New Testament attempts to work at that over and over again to say, you're never going to be acceptable to God. I can't be on the basis of law. When Jesus died, we died with him. We were made to die to the law. You know why? Because we were, notice what it says, right? We were joined to another. That, that imagery in Romans 7 is marriage. The woman is joined to another when her husband dies. You got to think in context. Jesus, or Paul has said in Romans 6, we, Jesus died and we died with him. So we're free now and released. Are you living like that? Is your union with Jesus clear enough to you that you do not believe that your acceptance with him is based on your performance? I know I'm saying you're robbing banks, but is it deep within your soul the idea that you're really acceptable to God and he welcomes you when you do well? Now, let's flip it. I'm not, I'm not saying either. Remember, Paul never said, well, hey, because you're in Jesus, you can live lawless in any way you want to. I'm not saying that either. Simply saying, you, you have to die to this as a means of acceptance. What would that look like in your life? I don't have an application listed, but here it is. Tomorrow morning when you get up, when you, you know, drink a cup of coffee or, or whatever, would you say in your heart and mind, I am accepted today because I have life in Jesus? 
I'm accepted today because my life is in Jesus. I'm in his life. I'm in his life. Here's another one that Paul says we've died to. Now, these are, these are stout statements. You've died to the law. Here's a second one. Sin. Wow. This sounds crazy. There's some things that Paul says sometimes. I go, man, you need to rethink this. <laughs> this doesn't make sense to me. This doesn't make sense to me. When, when Paul says that we have died to sin. Back in Romans chapter 6. How can we continue? He says this whole question. What shall we say? Do we continue to sin that grace may abound? Well, no. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Now, all of you people that think, I've been accused of this before, so I know that I'm teaching some kind of perfectionism. I'm just trying to read the scripture here. There's something Paul said here that is either crazy or true. So what does it mean? That, 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 that we have been separated from sin as a means of existence. See, first of all, we've been separated from the law as a means of acceptance. Now we've been separated from sin as a means of existence. What does that mean? Well, I want to suggest to you, as we think about this, that our problem, often I said before, is when we experience pain or difficulty, we start looking to other sources other than God for relief, don't we? Because we want life. If I'm, if, if I'm depressed or discouraged, I may look for life somewhere over here. Or if, I, if I'm lonely, I may look for life over here. Or, or if I'm frustrated, I may look for life over there. We've been separated from sin as a means of existence. Here it is. Because now, because of union with Jesus, our means of existence is faith. So when I'm discouraged, my faith causes me to look to Jesus or to his people. My faith says, I can go this way if I want to. It's, it's still available. Life in Adam is still out there. It's just dead. has no life in it. My new mode or means of existence is faith. So when it comes to those situations in my life where I'm tempted or struggling, it really comes down to what's your mode of existence, Cliff? Are you going to believe or are you going to move in this direction? Right? I mean, it sounds simple. But when we're tempted and struggling, our faith has to kick in. I said this before and I, it's, it's fascinating to me. Again, I'm not trying to make light of our lives, but when we think that Jesus died on the cross and cosmically somehow settled a debt for all humanity in the heavens and in the earth for all eternity, and we believe that like that, and yet we can't believe that he can give us the strength to close our mouth when we shouldn't say something. Where is that? What's happened here? Our mode of existence now 
is faith. We've been separated from sin as a mode of existence. When we face those situations now, we don't face them with just human power <clears throat> excuse me, and human ability. We face them with people of faith and say, I know what God said here. I know what Jesus has for me to do. I'm going to trust him in the middle of this as hard as it may be and as difficult because sin is no longer a mode of existence for me. I've asked you this before, what, what happens when we sin? Doesn't it make you feel great? For about that long, right? You know why? Because there's life in you. And it immediately disrupts it. I had my students, uh, remember, I'd have you memorize this verse if you would. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I have all of them memorized. I, I can't believe that any youth group, I ask them all the time in that class, hey, did your youth pastor not let you have you memorize this verse? And they say, no. And I said, give me his name. I want to get him fired. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation. Now, this is written to Christians, followers of Jesus. There's no temptation that has taken you that is not common to man. Nothing unusual here. And God is faithful who will never allow you to be tempted more than you are able to bear. Do you hear that? He will never allow me to be tempted more. I've had a conversation before. I think you missed this one, God. I think you just went across the line for me on this one. <laughs> but with the temptation, make a way of escape that you can bear up under it. I'm stunned that young people are not told, you've got to memorize that verse. Let me tell you why. My mode of existence, I, I've, I've, you know, I've just done this forever. When I was in college, a long time ago, I remember having a temptation and a struggle I could not stop. I remember it. Couldn't stop it. And I had a friend of mine that started talking to me as I was reading scripture and I'm back there in Romans 6 again, where it says, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Now, the word reckon there is the Greek word that means count it as a fact. And I remember them saying to me, why don't you, the next time you're tempted or struggle, they were a little charismatic, <laughs> lift your hands and praise to God and say, I am dead to this, and a dead man does not need it. I'm dead to this. I could see myself in a casket, and I said this. Does a dead man need this? No, sir. I am dead to this, and I'm just going to tell you, it broke it off of me. Why? Because my mode of, or my, my means of existence became my union with Christ and reckoning what he said. Count it as a fact. You can go see that in Romans 4, 2, where Paul said, when Abraham believed God, God reckoned it unto him as righteousness. Same thing. Now you reckon yourself dead into sin. The new existence is faith. Now I'm living my life. I'm dead to sin because, not my own strength, in union with Christ, it's my faith in him that makes the difference. And we got we to bring this down to daily living. 
You see, we have coping skills. When we get in trouble or difficulty, we're seeking life. So we seek it in other things instead of Jesus, instead of saying, wait a minute, I've been separated from this. This is not going to bring life to me. And I'm going to reckon myself alive in Christ and dead to this. Tell you a real quick story. Now, we're not going to do that third one today. Surprise. <laughs> it's a good one, though. But we're going to do the third one, and then we're going to do Raised with Christ next week. Years ago, when we first moved here um, uh, to, to teach here, Becky was finishing her degree. And uh, we were living in an apartment. We'd moved from about a 3,000-square-foot house to like a 600-square-foot house where you had to go outside to change your mind. <laughs> it was small. Wayne and Linda even lived with us at one point. We... I don't know think about what that was. <laughs> but there was four of us and a dog and a cat. And then they found a place, and Becky went on a choir tour with the school. They sang in California and locked that stuff. And so she left, and I stayed home with the dog. And I remember walking the dog. It was in the apartment. I'm out walking the dog one morning. I'm by myself. I'm lonely. I'm feeling sorry for myself. Becky's in California, and I'm here. I'm feeling sorry for myself. And so I'm walking the dog. Now, I'm not kidding you. I don't think I'm the center of the universe, but I think something happened here. <laughs> I'm walking the dog and right smack dab in, that's how you say it in Texas, in the sidewalk is a pornographic magazine right there. And I can tell, I mean, I haven't, I'm, not, I'm not inspecting it. <laughs> I can just tell. And the devil and the enemy of my soul said, you know, you're lonely, you're tired. Nobody will know. And I got my dog on that leash, and I'm thinking, I am dead to this. This is death on a stick. This is death to everything about me. This is death to the kind of life that I've been living in Jesus. And I walked over to it, and I really, I just kicked it in the bushes to get it away from people. Um, but I thought, I'm either going to live by faith this moment and reckon what Jesus said. That's my mode of existence, guys. That's your mode of existence. Faith, trust, confidence, rest in him. Or it's going to be sin. Does that make sense? There's a great little book by a guy named A.W. Tozer, and I'd recommend it. It's called I Talk Back to the Devil. I talk back to the devil. What about this week? And we'll finish. That your mode of existence, see? For some of you, it's your acceptance. That's what you're struggling with. For some of us, it's our mode of existence. What's your mode of existence going to be this week? Faith? Trust? Confidence? Looking to Jesus? Paul said, if we live like that, we are dead Listen, it doesn't mean you won't be tempted. Don't, please don't, don't, don't overstate this, Cliff. It doesn't mean you won't be tempted. It won't be drawn. It means you'll have a decision about what's your mode of existence. Am I going to trust and believe? I highly recommend that you memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I highly recommend you memorize 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. This is the victory that overcometh the world. Our faith. 1 John 4, 4. We, 
you know, we were at Glen Erie the other day and I, I told them the navigators have been there. They, 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 uh, they did scripture memory. You know, nobody memorized scripture anymore. You know why? Google. It's their fault. Why? Because we'd look it up. Well, one of these days you may not have your phone with you. What about memorizing some scripture that gives you this armament to say, I have died to this. Now, either the Bible's lying or it's true. Either this is a bunch of phony, baloney, good time rock and roll, or it's true. Again, we hear about Jesus dying for us. Do we know that we died with him when we adopt the existence of faith? We call those things out what they are. They're lies. They're smoke and mirrors. Because when Jesus died, you died. You were separated from the law as a means of acceptance. You were separated from this means of existence. But you're the only one. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's why Paul says over and over people that are not followers of Jesus are trapped and blinded by the God of this world. We ought to have compassion on them. Did you know you're dead? Take your pulse. <laughs> You've been separated from two of the greatest problems in human existence, the law as a means of acceptance and sin as a means of existence. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, this sounds crazy. If we didn't believe that the scripture was true, we would say this is a bunch of baloney. But we do believe the scriptures are true. And we do believe that when you came to this earth, you came to do more than die for us. You offered us the invitation to die with you, to be separated from these powers these matters, to render them, as the scripture says, you in Colossians 2 said that you made a public example of the authorities and powers on the cross. You mastered them. So help us to get our heart and mind recalibrated to the wonder of the gospel, to the glory of it, that our sight might be recalibrated to see what life in Jesus looks like. And we pray this in your strong name. Amen.